1: Go to Bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's Bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello, 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 and welcome to episode three of the Starting Line podcast with me, Rich Lee. Before I get into episode three and our guest, I mean, you've probably seen his name anyway on the episode title, but before I do that, just a quick one again to say thank you for all of the love, all of the loveliness around episodes one and two. That's with Levi Root's episode one. If you haven't listened yet, do go and listen. And episode two, Marnie Swindles. She was absolutely fantastic. And to be honest, I'm just just really, really appreciative of the response if you can keep reviewing, if you can keep sharing, if you can keep telling your friends, then we can keep getting these fantastic guests the ears they deserve and the podcast, hopefully some more attention. That would be nice. On that note, I've been talking to a lot of people about how to get your podcasts out there, all of that stuff. And of course, reviews help, um, you know, sharing, telling your friends, all the stuff I just said. But we've been talking about social media promotion and every episode, I don't know if you've seen them, but if you haven't, go and have a look on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook. I share a 30-ish second promo of that episode. And it's put together, I'm really proud of them, but we share them and, as not know, I've been t- <laughs> so I'm doing the one for each episode. I was speaking to somebody the other day at Spotify uh, in their podcast department and they said, yeah, you get people with podcasts that are sharing five, six, seven times a week, to try and ride the wave of the algorithm. And that sounds crazy to me, but I want to do whatever we need to do to get this podcast out there to as many people as possible and to give as many listens to the other fantastic guests we have each series. So if that's you, if that's something you're good at, if that's something you think, right, oh, yeah, I want to listen to this podcast and I want to pick out the best bits and I want to you know help create social media content, then get in touch. That's hello at startinglinepod.com. And... Just say hey, all oh, on any of the social channels. Indeed, they are brand new, so we are doing the best we can to get this to as many people as possible. Thank you. For a start, you're listening, so that's a good thing, right? On to the guest. Today we are talking to James Cracknell, OBE. James was born in May 1972, making him 51 years old. He's a British athlete, a rowing champion, double Olympic gold medalist. And God, it doesn't stop there. <laughs> so, James's list of achievements is as long as your arm. He is a two-time Olympic gold medalist. He's won six World Championship titles, rowing, one Junior World Championship title. He rode the Atlantic with Ben Fogel in 2005-2006. He's done a load of marathons around the world, uh, including New York City and London, he did the South Pole race and came second in 2008. He, in the same year, did the European Triathlon Championships. And in 2010, he became the highest place Brit ever in 25 years of the Marathon de Sable. Now, if anybody doesn't know what that is, it is a 250-kilometer race in the Moroccan Sahara. So you can imagine the temperature there. Uh, he participated in the Yukon Arctic Ultra and came second in a 430-mile race And in 2019, he became the oldest competitor and the oldest winner for Cambridge in the Oxford-Cambridge boat race, which he described as the most humbling experience. In 2020, he set the British Indoor Rowing Marathon record, covering 26.2 miles for his weight and his age range, Um, all raising money for Headway, a charity or association he's got an awful lot to do with, for good reason. We'll get onto that in a second. Uh, Yeah, he set a time of two hours, 30 minutes, 37 seconds. So... As you can tell, I I didn't want to do that thing where you get onto a podcast, you start talking to a guest and you tell them things that they already know. So I wanted to tell you that now before you get into the episode, as well as all of those things. In 2010, James's life changed when he was hit by a fuel truck while he was attempting a cycle run swim row from California to New York. And he got hit, then spent 12 days in a coma. And had a significant brain injury that we get into in the episode. That left him with some speech problems, some I mean, some some real issues. I'll I'll let him talk, you know, speak exactly to it. But the the fact is, he is one of the most incredibly single-minded, determined, decorated people I've ever had the pleasure of meeting. And I think people talk about this Olympic mindset, and you are dealing with one of possibly our most decorated athletes that Britain's ever produced. One of our most incredibly goal-oriented, single-minded athletes that we've ever produced. And hopefully that comes out in the episode. I think it does. So without further ado, I bring to you my conversation with James Cracknell. I obviously listen listen to interviews with you and, and various other things you you know you say that you, you feel like you didn't really celebrate any of the hmm. success. How's that been for you? It's, well, actually, it's... You keep doing things.
0: Well, that's part, part of it. I think it's, in whatever sport you're, you're in, but especially with, with the Olympics, it's on a four-year cycle. So whether you're a fan of any of those sports or not, there's always an understanding of what the Olympics is. And effectively, it's, everyone knows every four years. So it's a get-out-of-jail card for a lot of things you don't want to do, either things you your friend or girlfriend's about it, because you go out for dinner with our friends and you're like, mm, do I have to? um then you go, I've got a busy day training. They kind of it kind of gets you out of that. Yeah. And then it also stops you asking questions about your longer term motivation because you've always got that that goal on the end. And um and then it's actually one of the questions I think sportsmen find the find the hardest afterwards is what are you doing now? Because it you know I found that as well. It's it's nothing in your head is as important as the Olympics were and, and therefore nothing sounds quite as good. So it's, and the other, I guess there's two ways people go is partly living off it or doing other things. You mean like speaking gigs? Yeah. Sort of and the the thing about um, about my sport is that it's not the huge sort of corporate market around it, whether it be, you know, is it not the same as with football or rugby. You've got loads of rugby club dinners and round Six Nations and also internationally you can make, money talking about it whereas yeah it's not so much appeal of so what do you do sharing a room with Pinsent for six months of the year it's not <laughs> up a mountain in the middle of nowhere it's not the same so you, you then carve out I mean, you're lucky enough I was lucky enough to get another number of opportunities you do different things to try and make your hobby your job as well but it is it is difficult I think that that uh, one question is you know what you're doing now and they're the ones are you okay off the accent of which those are two questions you don't really you know, I guess you avoid answering yourself, but then you don't want to to be asked as well. So, it is a, retirement is a different thing. And, and, Do you yeah. feel like you're retired? Well, it's, it's, and, that, and that's the well, I guess there's two ways it can be phrased when you stop sport. It's either retirement or giving up and having done sport. Neither of those. giving up is again. not in your vocabulary. And right, then so. the retiring in the mid 30s is just weird. Yeah, because you know as though like you've you've been a hedge funder and you've bought three houses and you never have to work again. It's like okay, it's a different phase of your life starting and. And I was always adamant that in my head is, and that's probably why I didn't do another Olympics is if I'd done another Olympics, I would only ever have been a rower. And, you know, I rode with someone who went to five on five gold medals and he's far more than just a rower, but he's always ever going to be known as that. And um, You mean, you said that you think you had another Olympics in you? I, I definitely, in terms of the other things that I've done, yeah. And it's, you're part of a it's different to I think if you take sort of some of the monument you know, the monument wins of the 2003 English Rugby Boys and the sort of 2005 Ashes that if you look at the number of captains at their club that were in there you when know, you've got Hill, Delalio, Johnson you know, all those guys that were captains of their of their club as well were in the team and they, they all victory down at Gloucester yeah are they, are they all they all sort of culminated in that and then they all, a lot of them stopped and so whereas in in my sport the you know, Steve, Steve like over one from 84, 88, 90. So we had sort of ongoing there was always a couple of people left from each boat to progress it through. You know, then you know, didn't lose from eighty-four as a nation country didn't lose from eighty-four till Tokyo in twenty twenty. And so you arrogance say I, I had another one in me, but
1: you know, the signs were I was still
0: I producing mean, everything you did after best. that
1: fact shows that you were still incredibly physically capable. Um, or, or, you know, I know we'll get onto it and and in fact, I might speak about some of it in the intro because I know it's weird being told back your achievements. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> that would have made it five Olympics, wouldn't it? Because you, there were two that you were injured for.
0: Yeah, I broke my shoulder before 92 and then I self-made reserved. That was playing rugby, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, yes. I was on the rugby pitch playing. I think <laughs> you throw a ball at the... Uh, rowing world championships and I guarantee that is a thousand rows there I guarantee it will get dropped Really? But, yeah It's like you think <laughs> you think some of our uh, slip fielding's been bad in the ashes you throw a ball to a bunch of rows That no chance of it getting what caught What position did you play? I was um, second row or blindside but generally yeah, yeah. but but I'd not but then I, that, involved, that sort of insinuates a little bit of skill which i didn't have it was just <laughs> i happened to be
1: fitter than most people and you went to <laughs> a grammar school as well right so yes you know obviously rugby being
0: uh, my grammar school kingston grammar school someone broke their net playing rugby so they stopped it and so because it's next to the river they, they chose rowing instead so uh, is that how you got into it then mm, because i didn't fancy cricket well, well and cricket didn't fancy me if i'm <laughs> really honest um and and so you know i was standing in the outfield generally doing nothing and then this boat went past and i thought Everyone is doing something. I'll ever get that. Because yeah, yeah. uh, Bub- I imagine if rugby had been an option,
1: I would have played that. I would played for a club outside. Well, when I started rowing, yeah. 13, 14, yeah. Did you, at that time, did you kind of know not where it would take you, but did you look at rowing and think, okay, this is something I really want to throw myself into? Well, you, you start off and you fall in straight away. So
0: you initially know there's, no- but in terms of where it would be, you know, it's, when you're at that age, you, it's great doing something with your mates. Yeah. And, the, you know, the ones I stayed in touch with, at school, are the ones that I did sport with, not the ones that I did history with. Right. So, it, it, and that, so in that sense, and then I've been doing a couple of years, and the Olympics were on in eighty-eight. What was that Seoul Olympics? And Steve Redgrave won there, and I'm staying up and watching the rowing. And then it's suddenly, okay, that's where this sport. I got to the stage, and I wasn't falling out every day. Mm-hmm. Um, this sport, that's where it could take me. And then. There's, as I said, I was probably what, 15, 16? There's the under 18 world championships. So I thought, right, that's my first sort of fucking get into the Bush team there, then
1: you know, step up from there. But did you show promise straight away, or was um, it a case of a coach or some? Did somebody pick you up and say, there's something in this view?
0: Yes, but only after. They, yeah, I saw that talent in you when you're 15. Yeah, well, it's very. You know, oh, that was easy there, then. It? There's a lot of hindsight <laughs> experts there. The one, yeah. the one interesting breakthrough that I made was. So after my GCSE, so the GCSEs when you're in the summer term, when you're 16, and then I did the potential officers course of the Royal Marines. So that meant I had to train all summer to do that, and did that, and then I came back to school, and I never lost it again in to, on the, any of the physical tests or anything. To even the year above, it was just that that sort of two months of beasting myself on my own. I came back. Better than I'd finished, whereas everyone else came back having gone to Ibiza for two months. Uh, you say saying off oh, there about the football coach who lines people up and they start at various positions depending on what they've done. Having done two months of extra training, I started three steps ahead and they never caught me up, which then gives you confidence to say, right, I can. If you put your work in, you can do that. And of all the sports I tried, it was the one where you know, I could put in a huge amount of work at cricket or football and would get a tiny bit better. Mm. Whereas rowing, it was the, you put the work in, you will get
1: rewarded. Are you a sports fan?
0: Yeah, yeah. What's your favorite sport to watch? I I really enjoy international rugby. I enjoy watching the the Alpine finishes in the Tour de France. Yeah, that's waned and and peaked with various drug <laughs> drug infringements. Oh, yeah. on it. but you know, it's
1: still interested, right? It,
0: it's yeah, still, and it's still, absolutely- you know. At some stage in the 90s, when everyone was on EPO, it was a level playing field, but that doesn't mean it's right. It's just still,
1: <laughs> you know they're going through it either way. And it's, it's that... I guess everybody always says about the Olympics, don't they? And it's like, oh, there should be an Olympics where everybody's allowed to take performance and hunts and that
0: Yeah, and, and that, that is a, an argument. But then you look at what isn't spoken about enough, I don't think, is take American football. You know, I really enjoy watching American football. But their ban for steroids is four games. You get caught twice as eight games. That's half a season. You get caught three times. It's sixteen games, which that's is a regular just a slap season. Just the wrist, isn't it? Jesus. And, and if you get caught four times. You have to go and see the commissioner, <laughs> and and which is, you think those guys that get caught, the Dallas Cowboys are looking after them with all their medical support. Yeah. But then you realise there is no league structure there. That, that you know to talk about the football pyramid here of no. of a hundred kids that play high school football, ninety with the last game of football they play will be at high school. Mm. Then ten go on to university, and of those ten, nine will finish at university, and and that there'll be one person who makes it into the NFL. But the back for background for the, a lot of the guys is that it's worth taking risks risk to get a scholarship, and and with a lax drug policy, they're going to take steroids, buy them off some bloke behind the gym. I've seen it in and, sport in England, and and then you think, well, hang on, so no one's giving it to you, so. You think, well, I'll, if I take twice as many, and then they get a scholarship, and then you look at the number of date rape on American university campuses with guys that are testosterone-ed up beyond the gills, and then are also really valuable to university. If 90,000 people go and watch a high school, a uh, university that's incredible, incredible, yeah. they're going to be above the law. Yeah. And that's where the legal... You, know, you say, well, it's a level playing field, but it's not a level playing field if you're on a date with a 300-pound guy and, he's, and you say no. And that's that's where it becomes a societal issue. So I, I'm, at, you know, it's winning is important, but I've got two daughters, and you want them to go to university. You don't want them to be, you know, there's an attraction to really athletic blokes, but at some point, if they're fueled up in the wrong way, you, you don't want it to be anything other than consensual.
1: You almost went to uni in America. Yes, uh, to, you almost went to UCLA, right?
0: Yeah, no, it, yeah, and it's that was the. You know, I think if now.
1: a tuition fees here but also
0: so there's there's over a hundred guys on rowing rowing english rowing fellows on university scholarships in the states was that the case when you no no it it just it wasn't uh it wasn't a pathway in in that sense of that there was there was no tuition fees here Mm. and then it would be very very clever ones went to Oxford or Cambridge and you know, there was the University of London was very big as a sports, and that university's budgets are being spread thinner now so there's not sort of the same you want really good rowing then you go Oxford Brooks University is a very good rowing university although you only have to visit Oxford to row for Oxford Brooks. <laughs> in that sense it's not <laughs> right. the, you know but um, they're phenomenal a lot of national team row there but in terms of uh, if you're good enough to get a scholarship and it's free education why not why not take it I think the 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 risk from speaking to my parents is that you'd never come back but yeah it would it would have been completely different and you think would i think i probably would have gone now just because it's you know neither neither of my parents went to university so their ambition for me and my sister was to go to university and be a lawyer or a doctor i clearly mark that up but (laughs) (laughs) um that's where their their ambition so you know i'm talking to my dad about it and he was like well Leander Rain Club is at the rain club in Henley, which is where Steve Redgrave rode, and that's near near Reading. And so I'd won the won the under eighteen world championships, and I thought, well, I'll go to Reading University, and then I can row Leander. And, and my dad was like, well, Reading, yeah, that's your mum could do washing at the weekend. And yeah, like, that's brilliant. That's you realise that's not <laughs> the advice of, I mean you could go to Beverly Hills for four years free education. That's not really the uh, the advice of so was, was,
1: was it a case that? Having won the world champs, there was a scholarship on the table. It then, was so.
0: it. It kind of it's, it was it was not done the same. It wasn't the same sort of structured way now with people right. the rest of it. it, it you now there is a. I remember at, at school, the teacher goes, "Well, anyone who's interested in Oxbridge, stay behind mm-hmm. to do sort of." And then I'm going to go home to my my folks and go, What's Oxbridge? And they go, I "Don't know." Whereas because it's like you know, you can buy Oxford sort of and Cambridge in one. It was sort of that. If you wanted to go there, you'd have to do extra classes and take their entrance exams. And, and, and now I imagine schools will have a, a programme to get kids ready for their SATs and which universities are going to be more appropriate for them and all that sort of stuff. So it wasn't a real way. It's just like, well, you seem to be quite good at Row but not clever enough to go to Oxford or Cambridge. Try this one.
1: So were you the first to go to uni in your... Yeah, my younger
0: sister went. Well, she, uh, Yeah, but she never got lesson A in any exam. Oh, ever. really? And a yeah.
1: first. Yeah, she was just crazy clever. We you both competitive?
0: Well, yeah, I guess I am at some stuff. Um, no, she's very into very different things. So
1: um, it was just, but she
0: just annoyingly
1: good. Could... Did she go off and become a lawyer or doctor? Or... No, she
0: didn't. No, she, well, she worked for the um, Science Museum and then Natural History Museum. So so it was great. So more academic. More academic. Yeah. And, you know, your kids could have a sleepover at the museum. Also she was the best auntie. Yeah. Sleep <laughs> beneath
1: the blue whale. <laughs> yeah. So your parents, you said that they obviously didn't know Oxbridge. What was their background?
0: So mum's a physio, dad's an accountant,
1: and my granddad
0: won £1,000 in the pool in the 50, in the pools in the 50s, which then meant you could buy a house without a mortgage, which then suddenly, right going from week to week, you can look over the fence and write, what do you do for that? So their ambitions for my mum changed kind of overnight, and then uh, hence that just raises you up a, a whole class you have not got to worry about. Now, you know, getting on the housing ladder. If, you, if someone said how much your life would change if you could... Well, here's a house with no mortgage. You're like, okay, suddenly my life
1: choices have changed dramatically. I think you said before, so 1,000, 1,500, something mm. like that. Um, I looked at that. That's 40K in today's money. And, you know, if yeah. it, you said it was like the 50s, that's yeah. about 40K in today's money, which is just that's life-changing summer money. Mm. Were your parents supportive of you and your rowing?
0: There were... What is the... You know, is the, the best thing about about them, and I think it's a, you know, it's it's done done rightly is one of the best things about our society, is um, is that, and which is why I was really lucky, in that they didn't encourage it, because they'd rather I got a job. But, (laughs) especially when I missed, you know, I got ill and missed Olympics when I was out there, that it's like another four years of no job. But I always knew that if I got in trouble... There was a safety net there, mm-hmm. and that comes from a background where you know, we we're middle class, not not rich, but other, aware of other people in other sports. If you're in the Olympic boxing team, you haven't got that. If you if it doesn't work, there is no yeah. your family don't maybe will own a house and be able to support you, and you know or have really have good jobs and all that sort of stuff. So I always knew there was if it, if it went wrong, there was a safety net. and I had a safety net of degree, all those things mm-hmm. that, that other people that so what was your degree? Uh, geography. Or well, colouring, as my sister said.
1: So like, maybe she's
0: the best.
1: What made you choose geography?
0: I I just enjoyed it at school and, f- and found it e- the easiest, really. And then, based on my on my l- choice of university it was close to where I was rowing. Like I didn't want to suddenly do <laughs> mechanical engineering yeah. and yeah. then
1: have no time to do the other side. Were so. you thinking right when you, when you say that was almost a safety net to have the degree? Like, what would you have done if not if, if rowing wouldn't have worked out? What would you have? I, I honestly don't know. I did mean, you have to like, kind of allow yourself to think.
0: It? I well I, before. Um, so I did a I did a Master's in physiology. So we trained in the coxless four that I won the Sydney Olympics in. Trained that from sort of ninety seven to two thousand, and so I did a uh, Master's in physiology during that time because mm. lottery funding would come in, but I so we could train full time, but I didn't. I thought it was better to do something productive than play PlayStation all afternoon. <laughs> so I did a Master of Physiology and that also I could understand why, we, you know, and challenge our coach as to why we were doing that session. Then what the point, you know, in a way that uh, he'd won a gold medal every Olympics since 72. So in my way, why would you challenge him? But you still need to know why you're doing it. And, and I I didn't want to get to the Sydney games and think, oh, I wish I'd asked that. I wish I'd done that. So I think it, it, I I felt... I had some academic credibility to ask those questions and, and understand understand that. And then in the final year, so ninety nine two thousand, I did I'd applied to law school and then so in the Olympic Village I was revising for the exams to get onto the law conversion course. So, you know, life did change after after the games, you know in a boat with someone when they won the fifth gold medal made it Stephen Matthew were the only gold medalists. In any sport from the previous Olympics, you think we have got 30 odd gold medals in London and Rio. We got one in Atlanta. And so, if you're in a boat with those two, a you've got to win. Yeah. B it's your fault if they lose. Um, and suddenly, you know, the profile is that much bigger. And and so, you know, you, you could,
1: that would made that was a life changing, life changing race. What and was not, it like coming into that environment where you know they're winners? They're like did they put pressure on you? What, what was that like? No, they were yeah, they were they were great in, welcoming. in that sense.
0: They're incredibly welcoming, which is why I've always you know, right from the start, really like rowing, is because you know, whatever the boat you're in, so if you're in a four, you're twenty-five percent of that boat speed, and you can't be any more than that. And so it's ultimately you can if you you can have, you can have a lionel messy rower, but you ain't gonna make the difference Lionel Messi messy makes in the football pitch. And so it's about really it's about getting the 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 lowest standard up higher, and that requires a different a different attitude, a different way of you know. I don't think someone with Ronaldo's attitude would not. It's look, going on here. I think he's fantastic, and he fronts up and takes penalties, which a lot of players, I imagine, would rather not. And I, you know, I'm not sure I'll be rushing out there either. Um, but in terms of being open-minded enough to try to suggest different ways of doing things, whether he'd have accepted it, and Stephen Matthew were like that, I think. There's also a realisation that younger, fresher ideas and younger, fresher people were there. And also the way rowing selected is you you, you do it individually, your performance individually. And then actually in boats of two cool pairs, and, and in our country, the, the top two pairs became the four. And, and, uh, and I'd, you know, of the selection, I was kind of given the choice. So I, I chose to row th- with Tim Foster, who was the other guy in our, uh, that made up the four with Steve and Matthew. And... Part of that rationale was that if Tim and I could beat Steve and Matthew, then any suggestion we made came from a point of actually, right, you're not just those two and then these two other blokes. It's actually everyone has a 25% say. And in fairness, Steve and Matt were open to that right from the start. And I was, I was very, from having no Olympic medals at all, but I, you know, I was very adamant saying what was good enough to win in 96 will not be good enough in 2000. Because I didn't want to cross the line and think I wish I'd said something. So even if I risked really pissing them off, that was worth
1: it to, to give myself every chance of winning. That makes, I mean, makes perfect sense. I think you've you just got to have that ability to cooperate in a team sport. And I think. I, yeah. I mean, I absolutely love team sport. I think it's, I think everybody should have the opportunity to play. And it's, it's sad sometimes when you hear people talk about a lack of love for exercise or, you know, mm. you can almost pin it back to a PE lesson very often. And it's. And I just think it's, it's desperately sad that so many people have exactly that experience and don't have the opportunity to learn, grow, you know, learn what it's like to win, learn what it's like to lose, you know, all of those things. And I just think...
0: It's it's true. And I, I also, I, and I think I was lucky in that I swam a swimming club as well, which then it's you know, very much all you, you, you put in what you want and hours you don't want to go in the swimming pool, then you actually, you build a base level of fitness. And if I could go back and, you know, Talk to a five-year-old version of myself, I'd say, don't give up gymnastics. Really? Because, oh, my coordination is terrible. If I had <laughs> some knowledge of where various bits of my body start and end, which I think gymnastics gives you, yeah. you then can flourish to every other sport. I was a journalist at Beijing Olympics and went to look at some of the 10-year-old gymnastics class. But they would, part of the warm-up was, and then some guy would go, some Chinese order, and they'd just start walking on their hands. And they all could do it. And, they, and it's, just like, it's just like,
1: and they're all laughing it. I was just like, yeah, that is, I wish I had done this and I
0: was younger.
1: You know, actually, um, I kind of fell out of love with rugby. That was my, my sport, mainly up until kind of 20 or so. You know, it, as soon as I was like, I'm not quite good enough to make it, but you know, I kind of fell out of love because I was like, I don't want to feel get pissed all the time. Like that's not kind of, that's not why I played. Yeah. Um, and um, you know, you touched on earlier, you know, where, where I'm from, it's, it's, that's the sport. It's like, if, you, if you're not small, And, you know, you you might have the ability to catch a ball. Okay, you you push that direction. So I I tried so many different sports, American football, basketball, gymnastics as an adult. And you just see the people that have been there since they were four or five. And you see the difference in ability. And obviously I'm a lump. So, you know, but weirdly flexible for a lump. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So there was some capability, but it did make me wish exactly the same thing. But in sport, they always talk about opportunity, provision, and esteem. So, you know, do you have the opportunity to go to that sport? Is there a club next to you? I mean, provision. Do you have what you need to do that sport um, and esteem? Do you have people supporting you in that direction? And I think so many people miss out on one, two or th- all three of those things. And as I said a moment ago, I think it's a huge crying shame. How important is winning to you? <sighs> um, Does the question change whether you're talking to your children or somebody else?
0: Well, in, t- in terms of children, and so Trixie, my youngest, had her sports day a few weeks ago and she was down for the 800 meters, so she's 12. And, um, and she goes, oh, I hate the 800, I can't do it. And I'm much further sprint. So I go, you can do it. Of, of all the kids there, that you may, if you'd said, the tennis team, I can't do it, I'd have said, fair enough, you didn't inherit much <laughs> inherit much coordination from me. But I said, 800 meters, you have got the genes to do that. Your heart and <laughs> lungs will be, you know, you may trip over, but your heart and lungs will be will get you round." And she goes, yeah, but it's tiring. I go, look, if it's tiring for you, Everyone else will be as tired, if not more tired. So, really yeah. good, and and and, and she goes, it really hurts. Like I just stay one meter behind the person in front, and then mm. <laughs> in the last bit, overtake them. And it was the the, the confidence that I'm saying, no, you have got in the inside of you is built for this. And then she did it and loved it. Whereas it was to the point of, you know getting really tired I think okay I'm not good at this rather than actually everyone's as tired which, which everybody has to push through and, at some stage and and and, and it, you know it's is winning important it's I do not think and this is look, I parenting is the hardest thing anyone does I reckon and I was getting sort of told off by a, a kids mum who came round to eat and that I told him when he said he's food he said he didn't eat, he didn't cross what's wrong with that? And he goes, I'm allergic to crusts. And I was like, you're not allergic to crusts. <laughs> you know, there's, right. there's a difference between being fussy and you're that you're not allergic. she said, how can you, know, she came, so Mom said, how can you tell him he's not allergic to crusts? So I'm like, he's with my kids. So I'm like, yeah. if you've got a gluten allergy, don't eat anything, the, the red, but you're not saying you're allergic to this because you don't like it. And in that, trend, so, you know, that may be bad parenting. And then I don't agree with a, a certificate being given across country for having the biggest smile yeah, that um, it shouldn't all be about winning, but
1: it shouldn't be about a prize I don't think a it's prize given. that that's your mindset, given what you've achieved. and
0: But also, I want kids to enjoy it, but I don't think having a smile and getting a difficult for it is necessarily the agree. biggest. I completely agree.
1: But- As you say, it, it is difficult parenting, but I do think that there's such a, a degree of celebration and putting the arm around people just to make them feel better in that moment, rather than giving them the, the tools to... Succeed in a different way, possibly in the future. Well, so, I think I
0: think of the, so. The primary school—they're cross cancelled one year for it being too cold. And I was talking to the teacher. of these kids are going skiing in two days after the school finishes <laughs> for the spring term. And like, so they're, they're, they'll be fine on the slopes in two days because they've got the right kit on. It, being cold is like, okay don't wear a t-shirt. And it's that. It's that part of, and it's also it's. You know, where, where where that comes from the school, whether it comes to parents, whether it comes I don't know, but it's 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 just does what sort of lesson is that for quite
1: pervasive, that's what it is. So I think it's all around, if if I'm honest. Um question occurred to me as you were talking about um Trixie. Yeah. It, do you think your kids feel any pressure to succeed in both a, a sporting way, athletic way, and in other ways? I think I think my lad did.
0: Yeah. I've got a nineteen, twenty-year-old. And he he was telling my my ex that he he would told he would told the coach I'm not my dad and which is really sad to hear and especially as it was in football and I was like you yeah, know, you're far better than your dad you know if you have been in rowing okay you know a there's no excuse to say it ever he was far better than me at football anyway it's but it's it's that kind of so yeah does, do they feel the pressure it's interesting so um, Steve Rogave, his his wife Anne was the team doctor. And so we used to go to an altitude training camp over the summer. So it'd be three weeks up a mountain in Austria. And Natalie, his his eldest, was born in the early 90s. And so she, well, now i a team doctor and it was a way that she could you know, they could be together as well. And so then uh, Natalie would come <laughs> at various ages growing up on not the most interesting summer holiday with loads of blokes going rowing every day in the same lake. And so in her head, rowing and being a doctor was... Synonymous with really miserable holidays. And she's like, you know, never doing either. And uh, Anam went to the LA Olympics in, in rowing as well as being a doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was, I was talking to Steve. Um, I was saying, How's Natalie? And she's uh, yeah, she studying medicine at Oxford. And so she rode in the Oxford Women's Boat Race, and is now a doctor. So, oh, oh my god! So, <laughs> firstly, that's a lot of pressure she's put on herself. A by her parents, and then she chose exactly the things that they done. But then you yeah, know yeah. she's you yeah, know she's tall girl, you know, and six, yeah, you know, six three probably. Yeah. So and Steve's a monster. So yeah. So it's, it, it, whatever pressure you put on people, it's part of it is is what they take as well. You know, yeah. you look at um, Farrell. You know, and this is yeah, come on to anybody. I got. um I a nasty head injury and it happened in America and I was came back to hospital in this, in this country. And I had to, I didn't, I wanted to go home at that point and I had to go and see this neurologist, um, Mr. Greenwood, and I know Will Greenwood, the rugby player, and Will's dad in my head, I was a doctor. Okay, I had had a nasty head injury and not everything was thinking that clearly. and But I did know, Will's dad played rugby, and they played for the same club, club for a while, as yeah, Will said, you know, if, He's old man him, if you get a bang on the head, just search your shoulder, otherwise you won't be able to play next week, mm-hmm. which isn't the best advice. But yeah. Yeah. and then Will swallowed his tongue playing for the Lions in South Africa, and the manga flicked it out. Yeah. And apparently he came around in the back of the ambulance and, and said, Dad, dad, it's my shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so Will told me this story. And, uh, and so I'm in there with Mr. Greenwood, and I'm relaying this to him. And I go, Look, you're Will's dad. You, know, you take a relaxed attitude to brain injury. Can I go home? And he goes, Right. I'm not Will Greenwood's father. I take brain injury very seriously and you're staying here for the next <laughs>
1: month. I was like, no, my limited knowledge. What would you have done? Would you go back out on the bike? What would you no, have I've, done? Just,
0: I've just gone home. I've yeah. been in hospital in America for six weeks at that point. Yeah. I just wanted to go home. And so, yes. Yeah, so, but then my, the one scramble bit of knowledge, ha-ha, mm-hmm. I know your name, that person. This put is why to get out of here.
1: So we, as, as you say, we, you know, touching on that's an incredibly important kind of aspect, I guess, of your, I hate to say journey you know, too much, but, uh, you know, Well, no. it's, I mean, that's 2010, the, yeah. the cycle accident. So you were cycling from um, California to New York.
0: Yes. I, I, was a position of, of after
1: the, you know,
0: the, the, after Olympics and lucky enough that got a number of opportunities and far the Olympics to, uh, after the Athens Olympics you know you get invited to nice parties for months so that was 2004 2004 2004, 2004. Four. at this party and this bloke comes up and goes I'm going to row across the Atlantic do you want to do it and I was this is a guy called Ben Fogel who I didn't really know because we were busy and he worked on TV um, and I was like can you row and he goes no and
1: I go no <laughs> and
0: then I didn't take it. I didn't so, hang have, on. He
1: said he asked you if, he, yeah. if you fancy doing it. Is it fair, having me, never rode.
0: Having never rode. No, that, that's, it turns out that's the way Ben's approach to life. He doesn't, and that's why he successfully does, because he, he just goes up and he does, goes for it. Throws um, himself into it. And I was, at that point, wasn't sure if I was going to carry on to Beijing or not in 2008. Were you still training as you had? We, we were just, it was these month of invites was like the first month we had off after right. the games. And, uh, and I was, I'm was, in RA, and I spoke to our coach, and he said, look, take a year off, keep yourself fit. If you want to come back, you know, that's enough time. Um, and I thought, okay, I've got no goal for the first time in a decade. Then I phoned up Ben and said, oh, are you going to do it? And he goes, yes, I've got a boat. So, so we rode across the Atlantic, put me off the for life, but never mind. And then <laughs> we kind of... We I love all, that
1: you say so we rode the Atlantic. Yeah, it was miserable. You're the second person I've spoken to that's rode the Atlantic, and I bet they didn't do another ocean either. Calder Wood, MBE. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of Calder. She runs a charity called Climbing Out, and she she was equestrian, yeah, and then um, got injured. In I mean, you showed me that Looney Tunes thing earlier on in the most freak like way. So she um, a, a ton bale of hay fell on her head, compound oh. fractures like you wouldn't believe, and you know, so. Um, she became the first adaptive person to row the Atlantic solo. Just in talking to her, she said it like you said it. She was like, oh yeah, so I, so I rowed the Atlantic. And I'm no, 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 you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't just, I mean, uh, to, say, to to ask you how you found it is, and I know it was documented well, because there was a BBC series. There was, like yeah.
0: I mean, in terms of how finding it, the, the real, the toughest part, the physical stuff is, is kind of okay. It becomes more about problem solving than the physical side. But the actual hardest bit was being alone in your own head because we would do two hours on, two hours off all 24 hours a day. So you weren't always, you know, who's in the cabin when the other person's rowing. So you spend time on your own. and That's you know, a long time on your own, especially it's on the equator. So it's 12 hours a darkness. on us. So mm. You've got to be happy in your own head. And that was the oh, highest, yeah. yeah, Well, I, I'm better at I wasn't at all at the start. I was just wanted to get off and stop. We hadn't made such a fuss about going the BBC filming it. Probably was smashed off on the bottom of the boat and pressed our repub and got rescued. But yes. vanity is an amazing motivator at certain points. And then once you got into the habit of it, now I think the the reality is in, in so many things, whether it's doing the London Marathon, whether it be any other challenge you set yourself in business or whatever is... That to achieve it, you're taking away from time from mates, family, whatever, and you know, I remember uh, Bev saying to me um, as we were pushing off because you know, we had a, you know, are going to be away, we got planned to be away for days that we had a eighteen month old. How was it, "You better bloody enjoy it." And then you're there for two, and you get You've you're not you're enjoyed it. you not finding out going, oh, it's really horrible. Um, yeah, it's great. And then actually, you, at some point you learn to go, actually, when am I going to row across the Atlantic again? Yeah. Never is the answer. Um, put your head up and enjoy being there. Did and you make manage the most to enjoy it? Yeah, the second half, you go, okay, right. Appreciate it is more than enjoy it. But in mm-hmm. other things I've done, when I went to the South Pole as well, is actually look up and look around, around to the Sahara, or just take an appreciation of not what you've done to get there, but what other people are a sacrificing for you to be there. And so with those, you know, I mentioned South Pole and other things, I got to a position where my hobby and what I really enjoyed doing was actually a job as well. So I was working with Discovery Channel, and it was an endurance, officially an endurance travelogue through the state, so across the state. So you'd cycle out of LA, the run through Death Valley, which is amazing, and then cycle up Route 66, which is the kind of mother road, the backbone of America, up to Chicago and Lake Erie, Row Lake, um, or part there, then Row Lake Erie. Um, and then cycling to New York. And and then I got... How many miles was that? It's about 3,000 probably. Mm-hmm. And then I I, I got uh, cycling to Death Valley, ran to Death Valley, and then um, on Route 66 out, uh, not near Arizona was where the, where the helicopter took me, but on Route 66 I got um, hit by a fuel truck. Uh, so I was
1: cycling, and it was when we hit me on the back of the head, and then um it's gonna sound like a stupid question but i don't know if i've heard it answered before like did you hear it coming no no i've got
0: no, no memory of it and i got so and then i was in a coma for 10 or 12 days and then i kind what they call islands of memory where you can remember certain things but um not day-to-day memory for quite a long time um and then actually no real uh issue with long-term memory. I was just
1: about to ask exa- exactly but that. facial
0: recognition, short-term memory, really bad. Um, At the time or still? Facial recognition is still not great. Short-term memory is absolutely fine now. Um, but then you, you know you do lots of tests as well in neuropsychology and everything. And, and facial recognition, there's like a bell curve where 85% of society is in. And then you've got 7.5%, which is especially special educational needs. Outside the bell curve, to one side, then you've got Mensa and Mi6 out on the other side, and on, it's weird how the you know, the mind's amazing. And so, in terms of facial recall, they they, they flash up well, not flash, but for two seconds for fifty images, facial images, and they they put another fifty up, and you have to press a button if that face was in the first batch of photos or not. And I was out the bell curve on the special educational needs. And they do numerical recall where they give you a sequence of numbers, you know, 4, 18, 22. They just build it up. Um, you, then you repeat them back. And then there's another one where it's 4, 18, 22, and you have to go 22, 18, 4. And I was out the other side in MENSA and MI6 for being able to recall sequences of numbers. And I'm like, I never was out for, you know, that, that's new. Hang on, and that's also new. But so it's just that it's these sort of, yeah. it's, it's uh, the the brain. As you said, it's is, incredible. It is incredible, and mm-hmm. that's uh, you know, un, underappreciated. And you know, the neurologist goes that the reality is we don't know much about it. And I'm like, I'd rather you didn't say that. I'd rather you knew a lot about it than me. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, where were you hit then? Yeah, but well, were hit the back of my head. So if I hadn't had a helmet on, that would have been it. Um, and then the lucky part was I was thrown. at the fuel truck was against sixty-five. But I rolled, I knocked off to the right rather than under the wheels. And then he stopped, which is nice to him. Not nice of me. <laughs> I mean, you would he, hope he would. But there was no signal there.
1: So he called a, on the CB, called an ambulance. Then oh. they called a helicopter when they got there. I think I've seen, I mean, not, I've seen a photo you, you possibly have. There's blood at the scene. And, mm. and it looked absolutely horrific. And I mean, obviously, it's had an incredible and lasting impact on you. Like, did it put you off? Anything similar? What's interesting is
0: that it, because I didn't have a memory of anything going in front of me. I'd cycled, you know, grew up in London, cycled around London all my life. I've ridden a motorbike since I was 19. So I had no sort of memory of that. No, I'd always worn a bike helmet because we went on training camps to Australia where it's mandatory to wear a bike helmet. So we were on training camp there and you had to have one. And then not to wear one at home, yeah, people say it's an invasion of privacy and, or it's an invasion of, you know, of your rights and you are what to do. Yeah. You know, I don't care. But then the reality is other people care what happens to you. Mm. And I and, 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 so haven't been in a situation where my parents get the call, you've got to come to America, you don't know what's going to happen in the next 24 hours, your you chance to say goodbye. Why would you put people in that situation
1: by not wearing a helmet? Should it be legal here? Should it be, should it be mandatory here?
0: it's the the problem the one problem making it mandatory or two problems actually it's is that it makes people. it can make people bulletproof and then go on roads they're not able or you know you know safety wise that they think okay should i be on that road um and then because you've got to have a helmet you then don't really care what helmet it is it's just box ticking and then does it fit properly so badly fitting helmet that falls off when you crash is the same as not wearing one. So I think it's a, it's not quite as simple as, as binary as that. In, in Spain they had their first motorbike helmet law, is that you had to have your motorbike with your bike, which is why they would all drive it around on their elbows.
1: Right. Because
0: I <laughs> think yeah, there's a way to get around the rule. That yes, it's with my bike, but yeah. it's protecting my elbow. So it's a workable one. A workable solution is much better. But the reality is, other people care what happens to you, and if you're not. Prepared to deal with their feelings. And the reality is, having been in a, in a head trauma ward and recovered in a in a hospital that that dealt with brain injuries, if you know, how much don't work in every situation, but they sure as hell work better than not having one. If you know I'm lucky, I was I appreciated very well how lucky I was, and that I didn't have to have my partner wipe my ass the rest of my life. And if that if you can remove anything like that from by wearing it. And the, the, the reality is the only disadvantage wearing how is your hair gets mucked up. <laughs> is that really <laughs> worth you know, you, know, so your it, partner having to wipe your ass the rest of And that, that's the way <laughs> I kind of view it. There's no, there's no downside to wearing one. It's, that's the way I would see it.
1: So that was, as we said, 2010. Mm. A lot's been said about, um, and I guess like, like parallels made to um, you know, other brain injuries that have had an impact on personality. And things like that. I mean, did you feel your personality was changed by the, the accident at the time?
0: That's a, that's a really interesting question, and this is where it it becomes a much bigger a much bigger issue in, in a number of ways. Um, certainly not aware of speaking more slowly. That yes, people would say it, and and some wouldn't. And then if I hadn't seen someone for a year or so. They'll go, you speak totally differently now. So that was a real shock because, it's, because you don't know, feel you're doing it. People are often not sure what to say apart from, I'm oh, sorry, I had an accident. And then, like, yeah. you know, and, and then it's where you haven't seen someone for a while and they're like, bloody hell, that's, you sound, you look, t- your eyes are totally different now. Do people say that? Yeah. And so, yeah, just then just the eyes and then speak differently. And then it's, and this is where it puts you know, the, there's, well, it's definitely in terms of behavior, one that is, I was a lot more verbose for a while. And a lot more uninhibited in terms of things you'd say, because you haven't, you haven't got your filter on in the same way. So, yeah, and you're kind of aware of that.
1: Aware of that at the time, in a way that, I mean, that- A sliding scale of awareness. Feels like that might be quite an upsetting kind of thing to be aware of. If you're like, oh, I can't, like, did, did you feel like you were saying things that you, you didn't, like, didn't want to be saying, regretted, or was it, a, was it just a, oh, that's a bit different?
0: Well, you never, you never know whether people pick up on it, or whether they think, "What a dickie! <laughs> why did he say that?" And then don't call you back. And there are some, they're very amusing. In that, if you're some of the things is that if you're not a nasty bloke, that you then say things that are other people are thinking but don't say. Mm. It was, and this was so. As an example, in, I can't really remember saying it, but I was yeah. in hospital bed. I in America, and i I'd come round and. I was you – know, was up and moved around and everything like that. And then apparently one of the nurses that was looking after us was uh was a uh was a big girl, you know. And the Pittsburgh Steelers had won the Super Bowl that February before I got knocked off in July. And the their running back, which is the kind of like a center and Robbie just smacks through people, was uh, called Jerome Bettis, who was also known as the Fun Bus because he's a massive set of guys. I remember him very well. Yeah. And so he does exactly remember him well. And then so in my head, I go, "Do you know the Fun Bus? <laughs> you have exactly the same glutes as the Fun Bus.
1: The same glutes." No, yeah. So you went somewhere I wasn't expecting. Yeah, it. so we're the same big, massive backside. <laughs> yeah. So you, okay, somebody else might have thought it.
0: Yeah, I and mean, not said it. So yes, yeah, she, she got a big bum, but they go, "Ha, no." But I remember it's a sort of way of the what triggered it off was the Fun Bus. So I said, "Oh yeah, I know someone called the Fun Bus," you know. And so that element of it, and then one of the first events I went to was. So, lost the 2010 London Olympics for 2012 to be a fundraising Olympic thing around you know, you know, probably six months after I'd come back from America. Anyway, you know, it was you know the sort of lucky enough the BOA is supported by you know some members of the royal family, um, Prince Dan obviously, and but so anyway, uh, Prince Harry was there. He, he, says so this boat was at the bar, and uh, I was going up for a bar for a drink, and uh, and then I go he must have been in again, it may sound very weightist, but um, I look Okay, you like just look, you look just like Prince Harry in a fat suit, <laughs> exactly. See, that's funny to everyone around you, not to not the so guy, funny to him. <laughs> and then you would also rashly, you know, that level of filtering, yeah, yeah. they will not in the way of it's going to get you in a huge amount of yeah. trouble in the in tube or anything like that. But mm-hmm. there's an element of of filtering out things, and and then the the other harder and more difficult part is is at home because you're you know being at the at the of the house that you're not working you yeah you're losing income you know and your life's changed and then in and health is is fine but the reality is if it's not just your life as the victim that's changed' has the accident but your partner's changed life's changed you did your kids haven't got the same dad how old were the kids at the time uh Crude was um seven eight seven uh trixie was one kiki was one trixie was so beth and actually pregnant hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but
1: might be open to the perfect role
0: um they're young as well and then the stress of you know firstly being pregnant and then my loss of earnings then also i couldn't drive for a long time and then i discovered had epilepsy so i couldn't drive again for another couple of years so suddenly your partner is dealing with different personality someone who can't drive and she's pregnant you've four kids suddenly not three or two and so is the whole all those other stresses added to which whether it be behavioural change, whether it be oh, for a long time I was not good at a changing structure. So, right. if plans change, so what we're we doing at the weekend, and you know, you, you've, you've got kids that no plans are set in stone with three kids. It's a movable feast, and if, you, you're, if one of your you know, if one of the parents is really bad, if plans change, that is not conducive to an easy weekend. And then that that stress comes in with life, and you know, and and, and the reality is, you know, and this is where you know the work I do where is is really important. Is the bev was also affecting my case manager in terms of what ex, you know, treatment outpatient treatment I was you know entirely whether it be you know sorting anti epileptic medication whether that be therapy whether that be ongoing neuropsychology everything else and then loss of earnings and then dealing with three kids and suddenly that all those other stresses is, is enough stress running a household and then you're being the case manager. And then, how long was that ongoing kind of treatment for, or
1: is it is it still ongoing? Well, now, I mean, well, the
0: well, big issues that the neuro neurologist, neuropsychologist, one like, I checked out is the wrong word, but when I was checked out, discharged, or every, the word is, hospital, that it gave lots of very useful, I'm sure, instructions. But I remember two, and they were or two things: don't get said, hit in the head by well, a truck. That would actually be more useful than. 80% of people with the brains you get divorced and where you are after three years is where you'll be for the rest of your life. All right. And those are two, and where I was after three years, I, I went, I studied at Cambridge 2018, 2019, and I actually handed in my thesis nine years to the day that I got knocked off. And there is no way in hell I've been able to do that after three years. So, so it's so just not true then? It's not true. And then the, the difference is that I, having done sport and then you, where you are now, can you believe you can get to the Olympics? You do, but other people go, well, you know, a lot of people want to win the Olympics. And then mm. if you listen to that, you're never going to get there. And so luckily when he said that, that was, I'm used to hearing people put limits on you. Whereas if someone isn't, they accept that and they go, okay, that's fine. I am going to get divorced. This is going to happen. And the divorce one did happen. But I think, and, and that is, it's really disheartening to think how many people have have been not had their recovery optimized and had it limited by someone telling them what they won't be able to do and that you, you ask how long the recovery process is it's it's more is it being optimized all the way and and that's where it is really difficult if you're the partner emotionally invested rather than having a case manager do it and the you know the reality is that If your partner is, you know, I, I spent, for example, I spent was it, from 19 through to 30, 31, 32, of we train twice in the morning, rest in the afternoon, have an afternoon nap, and train again the afternoon, the afternoon, evening. And apparently, afternoon naps aren't normally that useful in a working day. So I had to, so when I stopped sport, I had to sort of get out of the habit of an afternoon nap being a productive thing to do when you're 30. And, and then suddenly you're coming from a brain injury and everyone's saying, look, if you feel tired, just have a nap. And then you're worried you're not earning for the house and someone's telling you to go to sleep. Mm-hmm. You think, well, how am I helping going to sleep? But you're obviously helping your brain recover. And then if your partner is your case manager and you've had a stressful time, you know, all marriages are stressful, but again, it would be different behaviour, not what your partner signed up for, everything like that, that if your partner then tells you to go, and ha- go to rest, oh, it's one of those days, go and have a lie down. Mm. Even though it is the right thing for you to do, coming off the back of other stress is very different from your case manager doing it or other experts telling you right, you need to rest.
1: We, I mean, I was gonna say it's a personal question, it's a personal interview. The reality of it, to, to your point, it's important to be very open and this happens to people all over the you know, all over the world. And you know, the the, the recovery how many people are being told you're probably gonna get divorced, mate? You know, how mm. many how many people are being told that? You said that obviously you're not the breadwinner, you know, you're not bringing any money in. Was there financial difficulty at that time? No,
0: no, there was not, in terms of not on the breadline, no, there wasn't, there wasn't, but in terms of, but yes, were we eating savings? Yes. And was there, and the perception of work, you know, I was very lucky in that the Olympics were in, there was Olympic work coming in. They may have wanted to sponsor current Olympians, but they were busy training, whereas you got a limited number of Olympians with gold medals. That are around to, to pick up that work. So, if the Olympics had been in, if the twenty twelve Olympics had been in Rio, and not London, it would have been much harder because you pick up that that kind of work. And but it, kids at school and school fees, and you don't have to send kids. But you suddenly you have signed up for that, mm. and there's the whole load of before you you start in negative before you even get up to zero. And so there's that that side of it. And the and the reality is that we were very lucky in that. It's, it's actually luckier in that period of life. It's less lucky when you're getting divorced. But you know, my peak earnings were when I was 30. So we had that buffer of having won a couple of Olympics and the bonuses and all that, and the sponsors are very lucky to have, had happened at that stage of life. So I had a
1: buffer, which I don't have now,
0: but then I did. So in that sense, it was not that of which other families have far more stress than that.
1: I guess that's what I was trying to get to as well is, you know, it's hard to relate to to a a, a double Olympic champion, you know, it's, but anybody listen to this that you know might be going through something similar, they might think, okay, yeah, there is hardship, and and I mean, I guess I'm, I'm intrigued. Well,
0: the Olympic, in terms of you know, it all depends on what. So when I stopped at the Olympics, my aim was to get to the point of retiring where. I didn't have to work for six months. I could choose what job I did. It's not a not ending. It's not when Lionel Messi, Lionel Messi finishes it into Miami. Mm-hmm. He's going to think, "What am I going to do in six months' time?" Yeah. he never has to do another thing. I had. I look. Yeah. Thank you. Having six months to really choose what you we want to do is a luxury that less than one percent of the population have. I totally accept that. But it's it was is a finite time, and it gave me that the luck. You know, and I was aware I had that choice. I wanted to make the time to do something that would you know feed the family and you know I would be motivated to do for the for the rest of my life and you know and contribute to society but it's um it's and and that's why it is i think i've cho i chose to talk about having a having a brain injury because it is and and not, you know it's there's times when I really regret it because I was. I never wanted the Olympics was something I did, not who I am, and I didn't want my the rest of my life to be defined by one day when I got hit by a fuel truck. And if you talk about having a brain injury, that's you're that bloke with the brain injury, as opposed to that bloke in a rainbow. And but at the same time, there are so many people who've have had setbacks and have got an injury and may not think there is any way back. And there's, you know, it's actually how you respond to a tough time that makes a difference. And so having you know someone in the public eye a little bit. Say that okay, it is tough, but this is and showing rather than telling that okay, you can get back to this point. I think it is really, I think it is really important to to do that. In the same way that epilepsy has, there's a real stigma around it. There's a lack of understanding around yeah. it, and and it's and that's it's it's similar to there's a lack of understanding around brain injury. When you know you, if you have epilepsy, you can't drive for a year, um, and you're very lucky you get a discounted rail card. And then you're on a train, you get tickets, and then you, you show your tickets to the guard And on the train, and, and hey, we give them the ticket, and then then you, you know, they'll often say, have you got your disabled rail card? And, and everyone else looks around and goes, well, he's all right, what's wrong with him? Because he's not visible. Exactly. And suddenly you're like, okay. And then so there's all those little, and everyone has a different way of, a varying level of confidence to cope with a comment like that. Yeah. And I, I was kind of okay with it. It was quite embarrassing, but I think, okay, fine. But... Some people may really, if having a bad day and that, it's the last thing they want. Or they're with work colleagues. Mm. And, you know, you know, my work colleagues, my basically, you dickhead. Where is it? <laughs> you got a blue badge. All, that's, that, 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 that's their way of, of doing it. Whereas yeah. if you're doing it with, you wanted to get promoted within your work and, yeah, okay, yeah, but can they cope with this level of pressure? You know, if you've got yeah. a deadline for this, then actually you know, they might be better to go to their colleague who can do yeah, that's that, that sort of it, it's different.
1: How did you feel about yourself in that time?
0: Well, I think it's also that's when it does, you know, comments of, of people around you make a difference. You know, Bev was phenomenal in those first few years after the accident, but their frustrations there. And so, whether it be, say, for example, that I wasn't resting in the afternoon, so therefore I'm not looking after myself, whereas in my head, If I'm sleeping, I'm not helping the family earn money. So that's conflict. And then if a partner's life has changed because they're not able to do what they do because you're not working as much or whatever, then those frustrations turn into sniping comments. Mm. And then if you're already on a low confidence, really hit you a bit harder from the person you care about, which then made, you know, in that situation. So I'm not putting it on her. It's, you know, it's, it's it's a whole behavior thing as well, is that actually should I be prioritising rest to then get work but it's a real difficult situation you have to have real confidence to go numb no, I need to go and have a 20 minute nap in the middle of the day it takes a lot of belief that's going to make you make you better and more productive and then makes you phone up and go for say do you want to come for a drink and, I'll go, and then you're confident and oh, no, I'd rather you'd rather not go out Yeah. which then puts more pressure on the you're kind of there all the time of course, going no out. Social- so yeah. other people you're, you're taking it off you rather than your partner's always taking it, so it is a whole. is a whole. In t- so in terms of the question of how I, was, I feel about myself, my the rest it, I was just low confidence, and I felt I, um, my shit was drifting without really having a planned direction. Which is the first time in my life that that it has done, and and that's where you know the case manager does really come in. And, and I mentioned the work I'm doing with HCML as their rehabilitation ambassador, and. They've got a, a client there who's actually had a bike accident and well, doing push bikes. Um, and it's, it's a very similar thing about his partner he doesn't think he's looking after himself best. He's not resting. He's trying to get back to work too much. he runs a business and he's not resting and that's frustrating her. And his biggest fear is him waking up one day and she's gone. From everyone from the outside, the solution to making your wife happy is to have an afternoon nap. That is not the hardest. One, as one plus one goes, everyone can see that's actually, she'll be self so satisfied that you are take care of your health. That'll mean she's, you know, your fear of her waking up one day and you wake up one day and she's gone is not there. And when you are at work, you'll be more productive because you're rested. But it's that being told by your partner and believing it's the right thing is very different to... Your case manager or actually, which is why it's I got me involved to actually talk through my experiences of it. And if I could go back, I would rest more. And it, and it was interesting for me. And this neurologist also said, don't drink for six months. And for me, that wasn't a problem. It's we, for the Olympics, so our last drink would be New Year's Eve when it clicked over to Olympic year. So our final was say Sydney was 23rd of September so our last drink was the millennium New Year's Eve and we didn't drink until the 23rd of September so for a neurologist telling me six months you can do it that's, I've done that before yeah whereas if you get smacked on the head by an RSJ on a building site and a neurologist says six months you go well,
1: God,
0: Your mates every week mm. it's like and that suddenly is not possible whereas an afternoon nap for him may be brilliant I'll take that whereas for me the afternoon nap I, I spent 10 years getting out of that and then but then drink, okay, that's fine, I can, you know, drink. Yeah. That's fine, I can do that. I've done that before. Whereas after a nap, I've go out of that. I'm not really productive. I'm not very productive when I'm asleep. And there's those little things, and that's where having a team of people around and what what therapy works and doesn't work. In in terms of, you know, we, people work are sports psychologists, they are great, but we were in a team environment where we're absolutely all committed to the same goal, and our dreams were in each other's hands. we had a really honest, open relationship about how we were going to get there. And so we would share problems and you know, we'd come into a room like this, we'd have it out, but as soon as you left that door, there were no grudges. And we kind of lived by that. So we didn't work with a sports psychologist. And our coach was very much was a team of five and he he knew us all really well rather than having someone come in and drop out. And so when I was, went to see a neuropsychologist, I remember the, the first time I went there, there was just you know, really two armchairs, and one had a small table with some tissues on it. And I, was, I said, "If you got a cold," and she goes, "No, she goes, no, they're for you in case you know." And my my thought was, "You ain't breaking me," <laughs> and, which I which I realise is not the approach you should have going into therapy session.
1: And I wish it's the approach you have if you're going into an Olympic final, exactly.
0: <laughs> and and that's and so that's where then you come home and then you know, Bev set it up, and it's like, oh, she's rubbish. Rather than the case manager, you know, no, this is the right person. You don't like this therapist? We'll try this one. Right, and that's that's where it suddenly becomes it's much more a professional relationship rather than your partner has spent time researching where to the right neuro psychologist, and then you don't like it. You know, well, why do I bother? Rather than actually your partner will phone up the case manager and go, "You didn't go with that neuropsychologist, psychologist. Can we find another one? Is there anyone else you can talk to, is that to?" Kind of the role that
1: HTML plays? Yeah,
0: and it just just and and that's where you go right, you know how long ago you, you said how long is the recovery process the, the bottom line is optimizing the recovery so there and then there's, there's less ongoing costs on you know things that you then have to sort out afterwards things that you know, it means you can get back to work early it means you're a better dad better husband better everything all the the things are optimized and that, that comes from having experts in a number of fields you know the brain really um, conquers and controls everything. So, example of of luck, you know, the NHS is fantastic with acute care, but it's only got a finite budget, and you know, case management and rehabilitation is expensive. But if you don't optimize your recovery, it's so the costs are going to come back in again. And so, I had um, epilepsy and had a seizure, and you know, the, my son had to call the ambulance. where We were at home, I had a seizure, while I was watching telly, and uh, we didn't know at that point I had epilepsy, and then. Went to hospital you know, and then put antidepressant medication. Had another seizure about a year later, and then they upped your dose. Um, but the, I went. The neurologist was there, and I had to have a follow up appointment. At which point he had a heart attack, and so then I got transferred to St Mary's in Paddington. And what was really interesting there is that the neurologist shared a sort of a corner of a of a, of a, a floor of building with a psychiatrist and an endocrinologist, their so hormones. And so they talk to each other in a way that a professional case manager would. And then it's like, okay, I then worked with a psychiatrist and so fill out their mood state and everything. And, and they, on the scale I have there, that I was depressed. And the endocrinologist said, yes, but his testosterone levels are here, right? No, producing basically no testosterone. So as a sportsman, he would have at least been producing the civilian norm. Mm-hmm. He may be producing more as a sportsman. And testosterone is is a reason why confident blokes get girls at nightclubs. It's because they are, and it is an attractive hormone. Too much of it is terrible. But, and so then the psychiatrist and the endocrinologist were like, oh, shoot antidepressants or testosterone. And they have a discussion. And then they go, we'll do testosterone first. The neurologist was talking to the endocrinologist and psychiatrist. Only happened because my previous neurologist had a heart attack. And that is is no—that is not the ideal case management scenario. Not at all. And so you have a case manager that can then tap into this, this, this. It's suddenly, your recovery is optimized. And I'm incredibly lucky to have had those three at St. Mary's in Paddington. But I only went there due to my previous knowledge of getting sick. And that's that's what is really important. It shouldn't be up to luck in that way, should it? It, it shouldn't be. But then at the same time, you've got a you know, The NHS is the the biggest employer in the country and in the, you know, it looks after all of us. So it's, there's an element where you, what do you prioritise? And you know, the reality is that from my, I'd, without having been to St Mary's, I don't think i would be contributing to the national purse in the same way that I am now. So it, it's a really, it's an impossible, hey, if anyone can answer that question, they'd be <laughs> straight in as Chancellor. So.
1: Which actually brings us on to something I was going to be talking about a little bit later, but you... And announced as a Conservative candidate, right? Yeah. Um, and that was...
0: Uh, well, no, they're doing seat selection now, so I am, yeah, so I'm still in the, in the process. You are, so talk, yes, yes. talk so, to yeah. me
1: about politics. So um, I want to get on to Cambridge and almost uh, why, and yep. human evolution. Mm-hmm. But um, as you mentioned, politics. Um, well, they're both it, tied in with each other, really? actually. So, okay,
0: so well. I, I worked with um, Policy Exchange and the Centre for Social Justice on childhood obesity, physical activity, and poverty. And... I you know, sat around a table like this with uh, lots of doctors, academics, and I felt that, you know, my knowledge and passion was not, I need some academic credibility. And then, and that's what I, I did then Enfield in Human Evolution and, and focusing on behavioral science. And that's, that was my motivation to do the course was was because I wanted to add academic credibility to the work in, in terms of, you know, the policies that affect people. And then you know, the... the Almost going too specific, 20% of the people of our country, all they have in their kitchen is a microwave, a kettle, and a toaster. So, a lot of healthy eating initiatives are just missing the people that would really benefit from it. 20% of people don't have a table in the house. So, suddenly your food choices are, again, it's just things like that that make a big difference. And physical exercises, uh, only 20% of people walk a mile continuously once a year. So, 80 people don't do that. That's 20 minutes. So that then you realise, okay, and so so that was the motivation to go to Cambridge to to study this, to get academic credibility, to, to see if I could have a positive contribution to public health policy, um, and also prove to myself and anyone else that. Academically, mentally, you're 100 there. Off that
1: was that was going to be my how I got to yeah. 2019. You know, going yeah. to going to uni was and, and that was, was that was that you proving to yourself and to other people that you, yes that you could and,
0: yeah. And it was the point was and also to do the the boat race, also Cambridge boat race. So physically and mentally, if I could answer those questions, it meant that question didn't need to be asked. And the reason for doing that course specifically was public health policy and preventative healthcare, which then you know, you're realizing the, the place you have the most influence is in Westminster. And then in the process now of selecting MPs to fight for the general election when it's going to be, it's then you've got to, it's such a different process to, sport is completely objective. It's, you know, if you're faster, stronger, and race better, you'll win. It's completely subjective for someone to trust you with their one vote. And just because you're good in the rowing vote does not mean you'd be good representing them or whatever issues are going on in their constituency. And it's a it's a humbling, fascinating process.
1: But um But your, your interest in it, I guess, started from a public health perspective. Yeah,
0: yeah my mum worked for the NHS, and that's the interest in it is that you know I was really fortunate to benefit from lottery funding and the public's love of sport. And you go to events that are funded by the you know, like National Lottery, and there'd be lots of different beneficiaries of the of the lottery there. And I felt I stood out like a sore thumb because everyone else is there for selfless reasons, whereas I was supported to do a selfish thing of, of what I wanted to do. And then suddenly, right, I, when I and people go about, well, it's a, the London Olympics is legacy, people being successful is legacy, but actually, which is we do need people to
1: aspire, we do you know, need to, 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 to inspire to. and to aspire
0: to. But for me, I think I'd, I'd rather have a, a legacy of public service than having achieved something, which is why politics and
1: making people's lives a bit better. It feels like you can do both.
0: It, and, well, like, I can't. Well, but then you got to persuade people to give you the chance to do the second one. Being faster is you you're kind of within your control. The other one is
1: you got to persuade people that you're not in it. For. Have you watched the Schwarzenegger documentary on Netflix? I have actually. Yeah. Like just just then, I was thinking, okay, well, sport elite level. And I know bodybuilding is very different to so well, it's it's, something as objective as rowing. You know, just that, it's that mindset. I think that's what keeps cropping up. You know, you you said a few times that the the academic stuff you've done, which bear in mind is a degree, a master's and an MPhil. Yeah. You said it's about academic credibility, almost proven to other people that, you know, you have a right to speak. It was a right to speak to your coach. Now it's a right to speak to the public. And I mean, human evolution as a, as a topic is fascinating even to to learn. I mean, that must've been put the boat race to one side. That must have been an experience anyway. Oh,
0: it's just phenomenal. The, the, uh, you know, on levels that it just easily understandable. So t- i give you two examples. Take um, Polynesian expansion. So when it comes down from Asia through to the you know, Samoan, Fiji, Tonga. And so there's a, a hypothesis about a thrifty gene. So in times of hardship, your body will, will store fat to be used, food, or food to be used as fat. Um, and a fuel and so the, the boat journeys that they went down and the islands that they they got to by the time they got there only the the people that had the ability to store fat may were strong enough to survive the ordeal and then you get to an uninhabited island and your diversity as a population is really limited so you're building so you're, within that gene pool you're just building up the ability to store energy for when it's needed and then you look at Samoans A they're massive 80% of them are overweight because they've got that really small gene pool and suddenly colonial colonies are, the British Empire's coming and bringing loads of food they're suddenly living in a land of nothing and a boat full of nothing so a boat full of everything so their obesity rates are terrible because what was adaptation to get there is now maladaptation and so they have to have, so you talk about professional rugby teams here is that the Samoan and the islanders have to have a different regime off season. They look yes. at a buffet and they put on twenty kilos. They look at a gym. Well, they, they said they look uh, at a gym and they put and they on massive. Yes. So they have to have a different waste program and a different food program. And so that's just understanding that how how behaviour is really important. Trying and then
1: to recall it. I think Trevor Leota. I remember hearing about him off season wasps. I think the coach I can't remember who it was at this point. You know, would send somebody around with him. To make sure he wasn't just eating everything that was inside. Yeah, well, there's no <laughs> MSG on those islands.
0: You know, that's why they love KFC. It's and it's and the other one that is fascinating is Genghis Khan of, of how he conquered China because his armies would fight each. They'd take two horses. So they had one to ride, one to drink the milk of the other one. Chinese army lactose intolerance. they had cows hauling rice, hauling food, and so when he captured one town, the Chinese would send a messenger tell the next village they're on the way. Genghis army could, they, the slowest thing in their army was a horse because they're using the other horse for energy and fuel. And so no army could keep up with them because whereas the Chinese are lactose intolerant, they didn't, whereas actually, so it's just the, the level of how those simple things make a huge difference to our society is just that actually right. the behavior is such a-
1: That's it's, it's super fascinating. Yeah. Like, and it, m- it must've been to, to study. Clearly, we, we talk a lot on on this back like drive and ambition, and you know I, I think the thing that unites the people that we've spoken to so far is exactly that. that it's not the it's not always selfishness in in pursuit of a goal, but it is a single mindedness and a, almost like, like do you want to prove people wrong? Is that something that's in you? Uh,
0: not not there is not no. I don't want to prove people wrong because I'd, I'd rather not have to prove people wrong. Yeah, but I wouldn't. I don't shy away from it. Yeah. I think that's I kind of I enjoy it. If if the challenge is thrown down to me. Yeah. And you know, so they talk, talk about you know, parliamentary seat selection. Yeah, I mean, the, if you're being asked the questions, it's you, know, the, you put in your application, and the mayor may get sifted out, and then a few get invited to interview, and they you know, raise opportunity to look at people eye and answer those questions as to right, what can you do for us? And the assumption is that if there's an assumption, because you did in this country, we've, I think we're really bad about pigeonholing people, and then getting from one one pigeonhole to the other. That we are not so. You know, so America is far better than... Well, just think, well, look how many of our leaders come from, our political leaders come from other walks of life. Mm. Would Arnie have been Mayor of London? Who knows, right? That's it. But then, it's, uh, but then you know, in the same way that, say, Terry Leahy or Justin King, so Terry Lee was CEO of Tesco's when mm. one pound out of every six pounds are being spent in his shops, yeah. you think he might actually be quite good at being the Chancellor. Yeah, he might have some good ideas, but then he gets, you know, his 13 million pounds a year bonus. From exactly what, I
1: mean, so, it's, it's, so we don't encourage different ways of thinking. Well, different, you, you think you, know, you think that with, I mean, I know some incredibly successful people that would be fantastic in office, hmm. but it's 80k and you're hit with powders constantly. And... Well, I think, I think you're right. I think that's the other thing. is, But
0: then it's, it's you've got to have a, a real will to do it. And that's not do, to say he, that that's... To transfer,
1: but he's not CEO of Tesco
0: anymore. And could he... You know, and so there's... I think, it's, I think we limit... We put limits on ourselves. And, and it actually, and I don't think it's just within politics. I think it's society. And, you know, I'm married to American Girl. And if... It's changing, I'm sure. But stereotypically, if your neighbour turns up in a really nice car, the response i think more than not here is why they got that Mm. whereas in america i get that too and it's just that subtle difference that actually enables it to be an inspiration rather than an instant suspicion
1: i've got a theory that we in the uk build people up if they're the underdog all the more all the more perfect build people up until they get to a point and then there's almost a can't wait to watch you fail you know, if you if you fail in any way, we're going to be on you. Whereas in the states, it feels like you know for for faults on either side, obviously. But in the states, it feels like there's a you know you can do it. There's a support. There's an optimism. And here that 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 exists up until a point. Yeah. And then it becomes a yeah as, as to what you just said about the car. Why have you got that? Like, you know, why haven't I got that? As you say, it's, it's fascinating because it is a very very different approach and um, brighter people than me can probably work out why but you know it's well, no, I, I don't no, understand it either no I truth. think
0: that's where there is there is an advantage for you know diversity and now I think people roll their eyes you know the reality is that you know I it's fine for me to talk about diversity because I white well, male middle class and I've had the you know it's, it's been I've been I've been been the tide carried one way for a long time and you know actually having had having epilepsy, a serious accident, and a brain injury, those are barriers. Suddenly, if you go into a hotel and you, you say, you know, you, the gym, you suddenly hang you got epilepsy. Well, it's important if you've got So there's some the barriers there. are slightly, you know, I'm you know, appreciative of them in a way that I never was before. But um, what,
1: what do you want to do in politics then? So what's, what's, the, what's the aim? Yeah,
0: the, I think the, the big aim actually, you know, for a you know, point of getting it is to actually make people's lives better, whether that's your 80,000 constituents, and then my big motivation is, is preventative healthcare because you know, 95% of our NHS budget is on treatment, only 5% on prevention. And so at some point it's going to be a snake that, that bites the head off itself because it, it, you can't keep doing it that way. You've got to stop people getting ill. And
1: preventative healthcare. And so, I mean, you, you touched on obesity earlier on. How much of a, of a role or an impact do you think obesity has on that
0: 95%? Take obesity as an example. So the cost of treating obesity and its the effects of obesity are more than the police force and fire brigade per year but the the big thing 80 percent of us are going to die of an insulin resistance illness so we eat too much of the sugar. so so it's it's, there's just behavior or a non-communicable disease a lifestyle whether that be respiratory heart disease type two diabetes all the things that are controllable and that's the thing that does benefit the economy, by looking after them to be more productive. You
1: know, are we workforce. as honest about it as we should be? But
0: the, the, the
1: the problem is... I'm not trying to trip you up there. I'm not trying no, to no, lead you down with well, that. It's, it's, because I've got my, my, my belief is that we're not. I think we we're might not, lie was, to ourselves. Okay, I
0: was on the... the David Cameron's government, I was on the... There's an obesity round table, um, which is looking at lifestyle. So that, when the, that was back in 2014. So that that long ago. And then that was disbanded when... The deal was EU referendum was ratified because they're going to spend a lot more time campaigning, so it gets kicked down. And then actually, when Boris Johnson got COVID and you know, attributed to being overweight and out of shape, that for the first time, the it was actually not physical exercise, but what you ate became an issue. That you know, no one can outrun a bad diet, so it's what you put in as much is more than you know, what you burn off. But then that gets with all the the then the problems. Associated with the bills of COVID, and they're straight into Russia and Ukraine. That though it gets shoved down the pecking order by other issues, and the reality is it's going to be a generational change. And if we don't do something about it, no, no modern nation has has come up with a solution for it. And to even arrest the growth of it's not just the beasties. You know, there's areas that there's not as many, but there's a huge number of unhealthy people who are not overweight. They're just, there's the thin fat, if you forgot about a better word. It's it's, it's, a, it's a, a huge number of issues. And that just contributes to, you know, my, my, my real belief is that I want to live in a country where people make the most of their life, their kids' lives and their grandkids' lives. And that comes by looking after yourself. It's not about rowing a boat really fast or running really fast. It's about actually, you know, if, if a doctors to give you a pill that was that would give you exactly the same benefits of physical health of physical activity in terms of, you know, everybody would take it. Why wouldn't you take it? Yeah. You know, they, you know I don't despise anyone who's been out for a run to come back and feel worse than before they went. And then, you know, and then also the benefits to your heart, the benefits to everything else. Um, you know, okay, it's not good for weight loss, it's good for weight maintenance, but it's more just the, the benefits of it are, are huge. And so there's that, it's one of a society of people. And I'm I'm lucky in the sport that I did in that I've got mates who you, you know played rugby seriously or whatever, and and they go, do you want to do something tomorrow? And they go, let's go for a run. And they go, oh, I can't run. I've
1: Got a national mm. a neck of this. Neck. I've had three up, right? jaw, yeah. jaw, thumb, <laughs> knee. <laughs> You know and it, it, you know, it's impactful, it's hard then, you, yeah. you've got to work your way around it.
0: I know. And then they go, Well, you didn't all do a stupid sport, yeah. It's I, a bloody I got, stupid sport. I, got, <laughs> I, got, you know, I, I say, I've got the heart and lungs of a 20 year old, I've got a bad back of an 80 <laughs> year old, but yeah, apart from that, I'm fine. And so, there's all and it's that, but this is making you know, being able to live, you know, I, I want my kids and my grandkid, if I'm lucky enough to have any, to, to not think, Oh, okay, we've got granddad can't do that. I think yeah. there'd be a long time for I'm not able to go for a bike ride with them. Yeah, and that's co- part of that. And I'm lucky in that I invested through doing sport in my health early on, and it, it's amazing you look after. It is the most. The
1: brain is. Like I I know from experience, the brain is wonderful. Our bodies are amazing. We just got to look after them. And I mean, I think it does come back down to just an honest conversation about it, and not feeling like you have to pussyfoot around almost the the, the topic. Well, this is
0: where this is where you know, in terms of what you want to achieve in wrestling, one thing that I would change would be the childhood measurement program. You get measured at five and 11, so before entering primary school and then when you transfer from primary to secondary. And so if you're overweight at four or five, you get a letter to say, you know, your child's weight management problems that come and talk to us about this. And so, but that is known as the fat letter. And then suddenly the person you want to engage has gone, you calling my kid fat? And then so you've lost them. And then the next measurement is five years later. So one in five kids enter primary school overweight. One in three kids leave primary school overweight. And if you're obese at eleven you old, eighty percent of obese eleven year olds are obese adults. They're basically their future life is predicted at that point. And you've you've by alienated people at that point. You've, and so therefore you should actually right where so Amsterdam is actually got a very good project where they identify areas where there are a large number of kids who've. Who are at risk of being overweight and then right it says that area we need to focus on inclusive groups in this area and measure them every year we're not doing that so that's that's something you can and we it's going to be a generational change and and that's so if you don't if you so you've got to start somewhere but the problem is is that there's going to be no political benefit in five years time of the next general election for the money you put into that so therefore it gets kicked down the road and then the big bill is going to be met by our kids and grandkids. And again, would you vote for me? <laughs>
1: <laughs> and again, but the, but the cycle that does then continue. You know, those children will become parents, mm, yeah. and their habits will you know will be passed on, and no, nothing good comes of that. I mean, we, we've seen it. We've seen it generationally. You know what's what's happened. I mean, do you think do you think media and social media has any kind of bearing on public health in that sense? Um, do you think it has? What, what could change?
0: Well, in terms of, I think the only, in I can see, in terms of social media, is there's a real fear. I I would hate to be a kid now and images of
1: just like body. Imagine being fourteen now. Body conscious images, especially a fourteen year old girl. I mean, your your daughters. I've had to navigate it. My eldest is almost seventeen, and just the. And I've said a million times, you know, I'm not, I'm not equipped to be a, a father of a teenage girl in 2020, whatever. It's it's a rough old you know, it's a rough time.
0: And so I, I don't know. I'm not sure the I don't know how social media works. That the, the, what I it's, it's difficult at parents. It's difficult you know if you're low income family and then you haven't got the affordability to buy in bulk and then your your areas that you live in are going to have more fast food outlets and you, all the things that are. it's also sixty percent of our pets are overweight. Is that right? And they are we're in complete control of what our pets eat. And so we still overfeed them. And that's, there's an element of that, that we need to take responsibility as people, personal responsibility. And that's... I remember picking up, I got a couple of French bulldogs and, um, from the breeder. And uh, I was talking about health issues and they said, look, uh, vet, insurance, and all that. I said, well, well, look, the biggest health issues are going to be from their bodies too heavy for their skeletons and their muscles. So, and they said, right, stand over, so whatever, two months old, three months old. He said, stand over him I said that is the shape. Keep that shape. I took a picture on my phone, and, and that's that. That's the simple instruction. They think, okay, well, that's the shape it should be. I said that his shoulders will be. You know, they're not the, the best designed dogs. Evolution may have sorted them out for people like me, but it's just, just I'm pretty full on about right. This, this is what he eats. Does, that shape does not change, and therefore the health issues that go along with it. In the same way. Our evolution wow. as, as bipods, we're still not
1: there. If we're bloody eating too much, we're going to end up in bad
0: backs and all manner of stuff.
1: What is the process then, um, politically, to get from where we are to? Where well, it's a, um, as in for you personally, like, the, so-
0: there's so see, so you got to gain a seat, fight for a seat yeah. to to then represent, and so they'll select an auto that you can gain knowledge of that area if it's not the area you live in, and then um, and then fight for the whenever the general elections be called. It's a brilliantly, it's a great democratic system in in terms of. If you take take a really yes. you know take a very safe seat, that the MP there doesn't change very often. So for the, your if you're a member of whatever party is, and you're selecting your candidate, and if you're the majority party in that area, that that's a twenty year decision because they, they're going to be so that that vote you make now actually affects twenty years of the person you're going to write to and say I need this sorted out. Can I am seeing your surgery? That yeah. so. It's a big, so you've got to persuade people. And that, I think that's that fantastic. And it's, they don't care what you've done. It's what you're going to do for them.
1: But essentially, it's becoming an MP. is It's yeah. the thing to... And if,
0: if that doesn't work, then I, if, if the way I view it is that if I'll get everything I can, and if it doesn't work, then I would go back and, and you know, for think tanks and try and affect policy that way. And
1: I mean, you, you've got incredibly valid voice in, in this space. And, and I think it's, it's important that we listen to the people that have, you, know, it's, you come into this with the best intentions. And in my view, anyway, you know, there's a you know, there's an empathy towards it, or it, you know.
0: Well, uh, thank you, and, and that's, that's I think it's, I, something I want to do. And I don't have to do, and but I also know that I'm not I'm not the biggest expert, but that that I'm, I can learn, yeah. and so there's the ability to you know to know that, and then there's also it's the, given. <laughs> I, I, I'm pretty good at a long-term goal and I could tell, working in yeah. a team, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> so maybe something, somebody, somebody gets a chance.
1: Who knows? <laughs> Well, I mean, and then I guess to, to go back to the, uh, to the to the boat race and that single-mindedness and the reason that I bought the Arnie documentary and, mm. um, you know, with with that drive and ambition and then the goal to achieve, you set yourself a goal. Obviously, you were learning anyway, you know, you went to uh, to, to, to study, but how much of a percentage, we talked a lot in percentages, don't we? Um, how much of a percentage did the boat race play in going to Cambridge versus the, um, the course itself?
0: That if if the course hadn't been offered by Cambridge, I wouldn't
1: I wouldn't have gone there. Right. So it was offered by UCL and Cambridge. How like, how motivated so, I guess were you by the, the oldest competitor? Can I be the oldest winner? Did that come into your mind at all? No, that didn't. I didn't realize how much older than the oldest person I was. Ten would. years older than the oldest last well, person, and, and that
0: you? person steered the boat as well. So oh <laughs> really? Yeah. So that doesn't that well, doesn't count. But it's not quite the same. My last race, my last Rome race, race was the Olympic final. So in my head, I hadn't actually got that much worse, despite having rode 15 years in my arrogant head. And then after being, having been back there a week, I realised how much worse I was. And, and then... I mean, these are, what, 20, 21-year-olds? So I was older than everyone else's dad Who's was... In- <laughs> no way! Yeah. So I went, I went to... The first week we were there, we'd watched... I'd watched a documentary on Nirvana on, on Netflix... And came down to some lads, we did last night, so I watched this. None of them were born when Cobain was alive before he shot himself. And I'd been through university and seen Nirvana in concert. And yeah. I was like, okay, my cultural references are slightly, oh, you know. <laughs> I got married in 2002 and I had no idea about Tinder. Yeah, you know, so you suddenly, <laughs> so it's a whole, it's a whole different world. But then having been given a real slap in the face in the first week back at trading, okay, right, everyone's moved on. The older you are, the better you were. Not the better you are, and then it became. I'd set myself this challenge, and that getting in the boat was the first thing. And there so was there was how many how many people were kind of vying for the spots? Eight spots, right? The eight spots in the in the blue boat, yeah. And so well, at the start of the year, it was what, forty or fifty, and then it gets wheeled down, wheeled down. And then it's probably me and another guy in the. In the last sort of month or four, James
1: Cracknell. I'm not. I'm not getting on that boat.
0: Well, it's, I think also I was, I was very lucky and I timed my run very well. He performed really well all year, and, it's, and I just got in. I was, a, you know, I was the last man in the boat. Like I, I come to the Cambridge, I'd run a two forty two marathon, so heart and lungs are brilliant. The sprinting and raw power, no chance. I so basically was one pace, and and that's that's you, know, you can't get around that. Lucky you know, the race luck was seven kilometers not two but it's it's that element and then also your body changes in that if you eat the same food have the same diet and the same amount of exercise at 40 you had at 30 you'll put on three and a half kilos a year just because you, your testosterone your metabolism slows so much and that actually two and a half hours is about weekly exercise recommended five half hours a week and the reason people give for not doing is they haven't got enough time but yeah so then to burn off Two cans of Coke and two slices of pizza, which isn't a huge meal, is suddenly your weekly exercise. (laughs) So you realise
1: that you can't
0: outrun a diet. diet. You just got to... And then, you know, there's an adage of, you know, breakfast like a king, lunch like a prince, dinner like a pauper. Whereas if we're even if people are trying to be good, they may not have breakfast, have a light lunch, they have a big evening meal before they go to bed. So they think that's probably not the best time to have your biggest meal. So it was all manner of things that... And that's where behavioural change comes so, in.
1: Did, I mean, did you go into it feeling like you and the other seven guys could do it? The worst level we'd accept on the
0: race day was the best we'd done in training. So you don't sit on the start thinking, "Oh, we've got to do something you've never done before." You do something the best you've done in training is you know it was alright. So you think oh, can, that's our, that's our bare minimum, and then use the adrenaline of the race day to do that. And then it's a big it's a big day. It's very different to the Olympics where all the crowds two thousand meters away. Here you boat to helicopters and the crowd are right on top of you.
1: So you can get your adrenaline. Could be. I, I watched it. The, the boats are right in front of you, as like 15 meters ahead.
0: Uh, well, and then, and then you just you, you walk out to that noise, and you have got to warm up for it. So your adrenaline could go really early. And then you got you, you want to be your evidence to be its highest on the start, not 45 minutes before. So experience on that side of it was was useful, I think. Also, did you pass that on? Yeah, and I think also being prefer- not being afraid to challenge each other. It can't be too nice about it. It's, yeah. you know, you've, trying to win something is very different to it being yours and someone trying to take it off you. And this is our race. They are trying to take what's ours. Yeah. Fight for a bit harder. Rather than you're both trying to win something and then oh, we never know. Maybe well, we and just came This short, is yeah. ours. This is ours. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That must have been and, inspirational. inspiration. I guess it's, it's similar to... You Know the mindset of the 2003 English rugby team. I think they went there thinking it was theirs. Someone's trying to knit your bag off you, fighting over you're not fighting a rag, your it's yours, hold on to it. You know, there's that kind of an element of that. You just hold on to it a little bit. A little brings more, me stronger.
1: to I didn't know this, your medals being nicked.
0: Oh, yeah, but that's what I know it's very
1: different. No, yeah, yet, because but were you in the house at the time? No, no, it's, no. When, when, when did that happen? So that's. Um, Six, I, oh, okay. so I wasn't sure if it was pre or post no, 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 uh, injury. It's,
0: it's, it was, uh,
1: that must have been like.
0: It's, it's, uh, they're, they're what they are. They're, the memories yeah. are far more valuable than the medals, and that. So that's yeah, the worst case is that. Well, they're quite battered anyway now. So <laughs> the IOC would. I'm sure they've got the cast still. So you get some new ones. So they are, that that side of it. Is that
1: you asking? Is uh, so. Yeah. I just have
0: two different ones. I know to pretend I've got four. Um, but no, so that. Yeah, that's... That
1: well, um, what did it mean
0: to you to win? It was really special and also doing it on the one day you had. There was no heat, no semi, no. You've, and you got one chance to do it and, you're only there for one year. and so, you
1: only left one, yeah. And you walked away from Cambridge with, obviously, the the, um, the degree. Yes. Having won that. Yes. And with your now wife.
0: We met at Cambridge, yeah, and then she came back. And then I I I owe as much to, it, to, to lockdown as anything else because she got locked down here
1: oh okay
0: Okay. rather than it be my romantic uh, (laughs) attraction (laughs) the irresistible nature of an English guy I think it's more the fact that she can fly back for ages
1: well James thank you so much for for coming in it's been a lot of fun so I really really appreciate you making the time thank you very much and there you have it I absolutely love how James being the person he is and again, is vaunted and is celebrated and has decorated his ears as I sat down with him and he'd cycled to, to meet us where we were in West London. I, I didn't know what to expect. And within two minutes, he would pulled out a family guy video <laughs> and had me laughing, uh, talking about retirement and all the things that happened to, to athletes in particular. So not how I saw that interview starting, but absolutely loved it nonetheless. So thank you to James. Thank you for his time. Hopefully, We've done a good job of cobbling together what is an incredible lifestyle so far. Thank you for you listening. Thank you to you for listening. You can listen to us on, I know this is weird because you are listening, but maybe you want to jump ship and go to another platform. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Spotify. We're on every other um, podcast platform you can imagine. Or go to startinglinepod.com and you can find links from there. You can follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Starting Line Show. You can follow us on Twitter at Starting Line Show. That's without the W because of character length, restrictions and all that. Uh, Just search The Starting Line Podcast on Facebook. You can follow James on Twitter and Instagram at James Cracknell. As ever, (laughs) this is the time to say, if you did enjoy the podcast then we do really, really appreciate you leaving us a five-star, thank you very much, review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen. It helps us get more listeners. It should get more ears on the fantastic interviewees we have and have lined up. You can email us at hello at startinglinepod.com. Say hi. Give us guest suggestions. If you are a manager or even somebody that thinks, do you know what? I've got a story to tell. Get involved get in touch hello at get involved hello at startinglinepod.com thank you once again if you keep coming back I'll keep bringing you great guests see you next time